0: Well, it's good to be back with you all. It was a refreshing time away for our family, just getting a little recovery time. So grateful for the men filling in. Did a excellent job all three uh, weeks that they were uh, leading us in uh, the teaching of God's Word. And so we've been in this series, you might already recognize, already called Living Parables. And we're walking through some of the different parables that Jesus taught while he was here on earth. And we're going to continue in that this morning in Mark chapter 13. You can start turning your Bibles there as I speak. But as you're flipping the pages to get to Mark 13, I'm wondering how many of you that have grown up in the church remember a particular film that was shown I mean this is going to test some some ages here a little bit it was shown back in the day it was called a thief in the night, does anybody remember this movie, A Thief in the Night? Uh, I remember years and years. Some of you are like, "What is that?" Look at that! Look at that! Uh, that uh, cover there, uh, pretty uh, dated. Uh, but I remember this was late seventies, maybe early eighties, and the church that we were attending had a, a showing of this. This was what they considered like good family fun, and uh, so my parents brought me to see this movie in the. My, I don't know what age I was, but clearly too young because this film. Haunted me, this film haunted me like i I still uh, have on occasion a nightmare where I wake up with the idea of this film is based on the idea of jesus christ 's return and people being left behind that thought they were going to be taken up with Christ, a thief in the night. And it went on to tell the story of people and all the trials that they faced after Jesus left with his chosen people. And it was it was intense. I remember the very first scene in that movie, still to this day, a, a mother that was left and she goes into the, the bathroom and there's her husband, Shaver, still on. You know, like it was it was a moment of panic. So in response to that, any time at a summer camp, any time at a Sunday school, I was ready to give my life again to Jesus. I mean, I was—I I came to Christ like 700 times in my childhood. Maybe I'm exaggerating. Uh, but the idea of this was a little bit traumatic. And the the idea, even in that day and age, I think they kind of used this idea of Christ's second coming as more of a a fear tactic, if we're honest, kind of a a fear tactic. One, it was a mobilizer for evangelism. Hurry up and get talking about it. And it was also a a call to holy living. Uh, When I say that it was a call to holy living, it was this idea that like, hey, don't let Christ return and find you sinning. You know, like this idea was kind of the twofold, pretty commonplace. Then I noticed the pendulum swung the opposite direction and uh, apart from the Left Behind series, really in my high school and college years, I didn't hear in church world, it talked about very much at all the idea of Christ's return. The idea of Christ's return was kind of left for those that were a little bit more fanatical, kind of those that are kind of extreme Christians, you know, believed that. The rest were kind of left with, ah, that's, it's in there somewhere, but is it actually relevant to our life today? Well, this morning, we're going to look at Scripture and how it points to this reality of Christ's pending return and how often it was talked about in Scripture. I was doing a little research on that this week. What's the appropriate response to this? In 260 chapters of the New Testament, there are 318 references to the second coming of Christ. 318 references, one out of every 13 verses in the New Testament speak of his coming return. Eight times the amount of prophecy about his second coming in comparison to prophecy about his first coming. So it's a it's a hot topic in the New Testament. I think it's important for us to look at that reality that at some point, whether it's in our lifetime or beyond, at some point, Jesus Christ is coming back to take his followers to be with him. And it's intended to be a source of hope, a source of motivation, something that we're excited about. How do I know that? Well, it's all over scripture. First Thessalonians four seventeen says, then we who are alive, who are left, Will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, in other words, because of this, encourage one another with these words. Is intended to be something that encourages imagine the possibility of us skipping death completely. That you're you're just immediately swept up to be with Christ in the air. How awesome does that sound? Kind of skipping the the misery of of, of life and just anybody ready for that? Like right now? How about right now? How about? Right. Can you imagine, like, in the moments, even when we're together, how sweet would it be if, while I was preaching on this, God chose to be like, All right, that's a good time to do it. Like, how awesome to think. It's intended to be something that compels us, something that's a, a source of hope. But unfortunately, I would suggest that for a lot of believers, it's a little bit of something that leaves different responses. Some people, it causes us to be a little bit anxious. And what I would suggest is the reason that is, is because maybe a misunderstanding about the gospel message. We'll get to this passage, I promise. The, the, the gospel message, when you're confused about it, when you think of it in perspective of, wait a second, is it an angry father that's arriving home? Remember when I was growing up, I was always excited to see my dad at the end of a workday. He was very committed to getting home at a regular time. He was wasn't the absentee father. Come home. We'd play basketball, catch in the yard. And I, I would always look forward to seeing my dad, except for when I'd done something dumb. Right? You remember that? The very worst thing your mom could ever say to you is say, wait. Till your dad gets home, you're then counting the moments. You're up in your room, you're waiting, and then you finally hear the knock of dad or the entrance of him coming to the house, and you hear the excitement, hey, how are you doing? Uh, the exchange between mom and dad, and then you hear voices get a little bit lower. <laughs> it's the recount. ...of the dumb thing that you had done and you're waiting, oh my goodness, I'm about to encounter angry dad. That wasn't the version that you're excited to see. And what the reason I bring that up is I think, unfortunately, that's a lot of people's perspective about Jesus' return. Thinking to themselves, they're like, oh man, but he's he's going to know, he knows everything. He's going to know about all the dumb stuff I've done. And And here's the reality and why we sing about the gospel message when we gather is because the reality is is that Jesus absorbed all of the penalty for all of your sin if you've embraced him as Lord and Savior. So therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They can be excited about his return. He's not coming with a big club for you. He's not coming, he's not showing up with justice in mind. The justice was absorbed by his son already. That's the amazing news of the gospel. Instead, the picture, what we talked about three weeks ago when Chris Kerner taught about the prodigal son, you picture the old gentleman that was seeing his son coming down the road. What did he do? He pulled up his robe and started running to him with arms wide open. That's the appropriate view. That should be the motivator. So our motivator in response to his pending return isn't because we're like, oh, I got to do enough good stuff and avoid bad stuff to make sure he's happy with me. No, just just the opposite. I do things because I have a very limited window to do something for somebody I love and has done so much for me. The time is short. Let me pray before we dive into this section of Scripture. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to gather and gather around the truth of your word, the promises that you've made that are as sure as the sunrise this morning, the promise that you're coming back. We ask now that you'd speak to us through this section of scripture, the way that you taught through story. We're excited to see what you have to say about your return this morning. We ask that you'd free us from distraction, that we'd encounter you through this time in your word. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So the account that we're going to be looking at is found in Mark chapter 13. We're in verse 32 for the parable part. This account is also found in the book of Matthew and Luke. It's known as the Olivet Discourse. Who has an idea of why it's called the Olivet Discourse? Because it was taught on the Mount of Olives. There you go. So that's the idea he's teaching concerning his return. And he goes through but prior to this uh, parable, he goes through a lot of intense stuff and signs that were leading up to Jesus' return. And there's some different opinions. Some believe that some of those things have already happened. Some believe that those things are still to come. Either way, we get to verse 32, it says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. No one knows, he says, only the Father knows when Christ is coming back. We're going to pause there for a moment because there's so many different opinions about the timing of his return so many different opinions. In fact, if you talk to maybe 10 people, even in our church, they would most likely have some different views on this. Most people can agree on the general timeline being attached to what the description in revelation that describes a a period of seven years called the tribulation. Period of seven years called the tribulation. This period of seven years is marked by the first Three and a half years, mostly being the tribulation being attached to things that are natural disasters and the earth so, showing signs of things winding down. The second three and a half years in this period called the tribulation that is attached to that period of time is more of kind of the like the plagues of Egypt, where the wrath of God starts to be poured out on mankind who has rejected Him and His Son. So, that period of time, you've kind of placed people or a theologian into three different categories. Are you following me so far? People are either pre trib, mid trib, or post trib. Pre trib is somebody that believes Christ is coming before things start to get pretty hairy. So, that's the person that believes. And then, then you have a person that would say mid-trip. So before his actual wrath on mankind, that's when Christ is going to return and bring people that have embraced him home to be with him. Some people, actually a much smaller group, believe that happens on the other side of that seven years. Are you following with me so far? Then you have a, a, a fourth group that's been added more recently that would be called a pantrib. Pantrib believes that it's all going to pan out In the end, and so whatever area you fall—sorry about that—whatever area you fall, it's fine. We can all be friends. We can have some differing opinions on that. I have uh, even people I really respect, John Irwin, my father, uh, would be in the in the pre-trib camp. I probably lean more towards the mid-trib camp, and you can land wherever uh, you want on that. My dad jokes about that. He says, well, Scott, I'm really looking forward to seeing you in heaven after all those bad things happen uh, for that. So he's pretty uh, confident of the... So I would say I'm actually mid-trib, hoping for pre-trib. You can go wherever you want. But the idea is this. You might have a general overview or a big, big picture idea of when his return is coming. But it's real specific here in verse 32 concerning the specific day or hour. Nobody knows. So what do we know? We know that nobody knows the specific time that he's coming, but that hasn't changed so many predictions. How many of you have crossed paths with somebody that has a specific date in mind? Maybe you got a pamphlet on your car or whatever. This is a a real popular thing to predict Christ's return. Joseph Smith predicted it in 1832 and 1890. Both were incorrect. The Seventh-day Adventist movement predicted 1856. Obviously, that didn't happen. Jehovah's Witnesses, they really like to predict this. Predicted it in 1914, 1918, 1925, 1941, 1975, and most recently in 1990. And so that's a, a, a thing out there. It's fairly common for someone to kind of ignore this verse and make a prediction. As a church, we are in the camp of, we don't know for sure because Scripture doesn't tell us for sure on this interesting in that section that he does say, not even the angels in heaven, nor the sun knows. It's not a little bit strange to read that. How did the, did the sun not know? But here's the reality of Jesus Christ's life here on earth. The idea is kenosis, that he shed himself of some of his d- divine attributes when he came here. And one of those being is unlimited knowledge. He left himself in the same position where we are is dependent on hearing from his father. That's why you're able to say in Luke 2.52 that Jesus increased in wisdom. He chose to increase over time learning and understanding much like we do. But here, regardless, the response, the appropriate response, what do we do with this information? Verse 33 tells us, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Be on guard, keep awake. That's the charge for us, to be on guard, to keep awake, to be alert because we don't know when it's going to happen. Could be even in the moments where we gather this morning. Be on guard, keep awake. I don't know if any of you have ever been on a long road trip. I don't know if anybody still does that now with planes as an option, but you've noticed on one of those trips that there's portions of the trip that you actually forget because you're like, I was kind of awake, but I was kind of asleep for a poor. Anybody want to confess to that? Uh, that's that's the worst when there's sections of a drive, and you're like, I don't really remember. I was kind of in this semi-conscious state, and now Teslas are making that even more of an option. This idea of sleeping as you drive is kind of a crazy thing. Let me tell you where that doesn't work. That doesn't work in Los Angeles, right? There's no such thing as driving in traffic and not being alert because why not? If you do, you will die. Crash. Uh, it, it will not go well because on the roads of LA, it's kind of every man for himself. It's a little bit like Mad Max beyond the Thunderdome. Like it's a it's a legit thing just to survive. And so what? You actually have to stay awake to keep alert. Josh uh, was telling me about about a comedian who was describing uh, driving, and he said, the reason why people don't use their blinkers is because it's like showing the enemy your battle plans. (laughs) And this idea... It's like showing your enemy your battle plans. This, this, this idea in our culture, driving is a, is a legit thing where you're like, man, it's, it's me and I've got to protect myself. You have to stay alert. And cell phones take that to a whole nother level. But we'll, we won't go there. But you get the idea. He's saying, listen, you need, to, you need to keep awake. Keep alert. You need to be on guard. You need to be at attention because you know this is a such a limited window. And going back to what I said earlier, why is that? Because you don't want to miss a chance to serve the one that you love. You don't want to miss a a limited opportunity. You just have a, a limited window to serve the one that you love. My kids, we have a tradition for their birthdays, uh, we like to go after they've gone to bed and we do like streamers outside of their door, balloons attached. And so when they co- come out in the morning, anybody else do this for their kids? Maybe even when they're younger, uh, but we, we, we have so that when they come out their door, it's like a party, you know, like it's really fun. Well, I remember one particular time. We kind of overlooked this for Alexa's birthday. Don't tell her she's at camp. And so I woke up, I wake up uh, fairly early. So I get up at like six or whatever. And I'm, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, it's her birthday. And I totally, we've totally forgot. And I, I nudge Adrian. She's usually the one that remembers this. And she's like, all right, let's go. Here's the plan. You get this, you get this. We start going, we gently shut her door. And then we start doing the full setup. And we actually pulled it off. It was pulled off. But the, the thinking is like, man, we just have this short little window of time before she wakes up. We don't want to miss the window to show her man, how much we love her, how much we value her, how, how important she is to us. What if that was our perspective of our relationship with God? Not this like, oh, shoot, he's going to find me sinning mentality. Oh, shoot, I'm not going to be busy when it gets here. But instead, the mentality of, man, I don't want to miss the one that I love the most, the person that's done the most for me. I don't want to miss a window to serve him. So therefore, I'm going to stay awake. The appropriate response is to keep awake. That's where he gets into the parable now, painting the picture of what's the alternate option it's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his, with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, again, he's saying the same thing. Stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly, and here's the worst possibility, and find you asleep the worst possibility, find you asleep. He uses a story that they'd all be familiar with, kind of the idea of somebody that, that's a, a, a landowner or somebody that has something that they're responsible for. Maybe for you, the illustration is of a business when the boss goes away, the, the picture of leaving somebody secondary in charge with responsibilities, with work to do. That's the same picture he's trying to paint here. The one that's in charge is leaving and you've been entrusted to take care of of the kingdom. That's how it works with Jesus Christ with his kids. He's like, I've entrusted this to you. I've left you with work to do. In high school, uh, every once in a while, my parents would have some kind of a getaway and they would entrust us kids with uh, some uh, taking care of the house while they're away. I remember one particular year, I was like maybe 16 years old. My parents decided uh, to leave for, I don't know, it was like seven or 10 days to Hawaii with a 16- or 17-year-old son at home alone. Not a good idea. And so, so here, here's the idea. They, they, they left and they entrusted me. And here's the piece that I liked, is they left me with a pretty good amount of cash to provide for food while they were away. I was like, sweet. Like, I was so broke. And they gave me this, whatever it was, amount of money to pay for food. And here was the thing. I had a car and it had a section on it that was, it was a Mustang. It had a section on it that could really use some refresh of the paint. It could really use a refresh of the paint. So I'm looking at this wad of cash. I'm looking at the car. I'm thinking, you know what? I can spend a good amount of that money on getting the car done and then live on the remaining $10 for the next 10 days. And so that's exactly what happened. That's what exactly got the car painted. It looked mint. It looked sweet. looked perfect. And I had this little amount of cash. And then I went to the grocery store to discover how little you could buy with 10 or $20. I went to the meat department because that's what a high school student does. And they had nothing. All of a sudden, though, I found in the corner, they had a big log of bologna, a big log of bologna for like 10 bucks. I'm like, I can eat bologna for 10 days. And so that's exactly what I did. I bought a big log of bologna. Uh, I, I was cutting it and cooking it and doing it. I mean, I ate bologna every possible way you can. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. After like five days in, I'm like going to every friend's house possible. I'm like, hey, can I come over for dinner? And um, the friends thought my parents had left me uh, destitute, but really they hadn't. This idea of being entrusted—that was a long story for not that much of an illustration. But here's the the idea of being entrusted with something. You don't want to be left to be found. You've been entrusted with somebody, and you misused it. You used it poorly. Each one of us, every single one of us, have been given gifts. We've been entrusted with a responsibility. You've been given talents, the way that God's wired you up for impact. And he's saying, man, don't let me come back and find you doing nothing, falling asleep. He describes kind of a picture of a night there. Their night was broken into four different three-hour segments, 6 to 9, 9 to 12, uh, 12 to 3, 3 to 6. That was their time of night. And in that, he even describes when the rooster crows, he says, you don't know when in that he's going to return, but you don't want to be found asleep. That's the worst possibility. In that day and age, they took that really seriously. I was reading a little bit up on this this week. If someone was found, a night watchman was found asleep during his window that he was supposed to work, guess what the consequence was? Death. Death was on the line. That's right. It it was literally, this was a life and death thing. So when he's telling this story, he's not just like, yeah, that would go poorly for you. He's like, no, death is on the line if you don't take this responsibility seriously. Another story, sorry, too many stories. But uh, when I was in uh, leading a college ministry back in Chicago, we did a missions trip uh, down somewhere, actually St. Vincent in the Caribbean. And the place that we were staying was known for a good amount of uh, degree of theft. And uh, so they had actually a night watchman that they were watching over kind of us and our sleeping arrangements. And I remember waking up one particular night to the scream of all of these college-age girls that were with us, and they come out running. And I come out and like, what's going on? What's going on? And they're like, we woke up to two thieves in our room going through our stuff while we were sleeping. Pretty intense, can you imagine? So I was like, oh my goodness, what are we doing? Like, what what do we do about this? So I I rush as quick as we can to 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 find the night watchman. I'm like, calling for him, calling for him. I find him. He slept through all of it. He's completely out. I, I I literally couldn't even get him to wake up. He had a blanket on. That was a little concerning. So it wasn't like it wasn't premeditated. I had to shake him and be like, what are you what are you doing? The picture here is don't be that guy. Don't be the guy that's found asleep with responsibility. And what does sleeping look like? I would suggest today, present day, sleeping in this picture looks like eh, self-centered living. You know, having really no uh, impact on those around you. Just all about me chasing non-essentials, non-eternals, missed opportunities for impact. He's like, don't be that. I've loved you. I, I like that he says, he says, each in charge, each with his work to do. Don't be found asleep. Don't be found asleep. Three times he mentions the third time here in verse 37. Kind of a recap. He says, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Somebody repeats something three times. You start to realize, wait a second. They, they really, really mean this. They really mean this. And so my question for us as we wrap up in this section of what does staying awake look like in your life? What does staying awake look like spiritually? What does a person that's awake versus asleep look like today? We now have two major motivators. The first motivator, if you think about it, is common sense. We have a limited time, whether or not Christ returns or not, here on this earth. This window, I was looking at statistics, the average American lifespan in 2018, 77 for men, 81 for women, limited window for life. And then you add into the equation, the second piece that we've talked about here is so you have a limited window of life, and then you have the potential of Christ's return anytime, any moment he could be coming back. At any moment, he could be coming back. That should create an urgency like none other. So how does that change the way in which we live? How how do we live with that kind of uh, urgency? I jotted down a couple things maybe you could add to this list. The first one is to maximize interactions. Maximize interactions. You think about how many people you love and you care about that you interact with and you start to think to yourself, wait a second, this might be the very last conversation I ever have with them. This might be the very last time that I have a chance to share about the love and grace of Jesus Christ. I I, I don't want to miss that opportunity with the people in my circle of influence. That's probably one of the biggest things that the urgency of his pending return should move us toward, is maximizing interactions with those we care about and love dearly. What does that look like? in your life. A couple other things I would suggest. I would say also enjoying and soaking in moments. Enjoying and soaking in moments. Part of our call and invitation in this life is to enjoy what God's created and to put the spotlight back on him and praise, thank you, God, for what you've done here. And the next time you're on a a walk or down by the ocean to make sure you're saying, man, God, thank you. I praise you for this. I acknowledge you. This whole life is intended to move us towards worship. It's not just something on Sunday mornings, enjoying and soaking in moments. My kids, I have three junior hires. They were so excited to go to camp this week. And uh, all week, my uh, uh, my daughters, uh, on uh, by Monday morning, uh, they were already both fully packed. Like uh, ready to go, like uh, got everything mapped out and all, all looking forward to leaving for camp this morning, ready to go. In fact, by the end of the week, Chase, my son, who would literally wait till like 10 minutes before, Sienna couldn't take it anymore. She actually goes to his room and packed him for him. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, what? how crazy is that? But I, I was thinking about, so all week, she kept waking up really early, just kind of counting down the hours. And one of the, the mornings, it was a, a morning, she's up at like 5.35. She c- comes and crawls in bed with us and she comes to snuggle. And there's that moment just for a second where I was about to say, Sienna, Get lost. Go back to bed. What are you doing? And then I said, "You know what? There's not too many times, too many years longer that they are still snuggling, right? Now, the, the the struggle years are over. Some uh, some of you are just like I have an adult that still likes to snuggle. That's a different different <laughs> issues. But uh, but anyway, th- this picture, this picture of her, I was just like, I was just. Had her nuzzled into my arm, and She starts doing that like falling asleep twitch and falling asleep. And I was just, just soaking it in. So for us, when you know that you have limited time, make sure you enjoy the moments and point to the one, celebrate the one that provided that moment. Maximizing interactions, enjoying moments, giving credit to the one that designed that moment is key. Third one, you see it there on the screen, forgive others. Forget the others. You're like, well, we're in church. Of course he's going to say that. But think about it. When you know that you have a, such a short window of time, you just have a limited time to, to interact and be here. What in the world room do you have for grudges? What in, the, what, what in the world do you have room for unforgiveness? That's a weight that you weren't intended to carry. Some of us This is the exact piece of the sermon you needed to hear this morning. You need to let go of that bitterness that you're holding on to. You need to release that person. Set them free. Say, you know what? The judge is coming back. He's going to sort all this out. It's all going to be all right. I'm not going to carry this. I'm going to choose to forgive. That could radically change somebody's life this morning if you chose to forgive. Another way of living awake. Last one is this, jotted down you. I'm sure you could add to the list. Endure suffering, endure suffering. It's funny when you know something's for a short period of time, how you can kind of muscle your way through it, right? When you know something's just a, a limited time that you have to deal with it. I love this quote. I don't know who said it. it says The coming of Christ is good news for those with lives filled with bad news. The coming of Christ is good news for those with lives that are filled with bad news because you know it's just a limited window. We do this Ocean City trip I mentioned already. And we typically, every year, we're able to get into the house that we rent there. Uh, It's on the East Coast that we're able to get on Saturday, but we usually fly in on Friday night. And it's usually the very last thing that I think about before going. I'm like, oh yeah, we have to get a hotel for that one night to be able to be ready for the next day. You know, anybody do the same thing when you're traveling somewhere? And usually when we're choosing one, we've waited way too long and the amount of options sub $100, that's me, uh, is very limited. And so we show up there and I'm just like, all right, where should we stay? And we've, I'll be honest, I'll confess with you, we've stayed, we've stayed in some real dumps. Some, some hotels that you're legit concerned about your safety. But you start to tell yourself, well, it's only for one night. It's only for one night. I remember a couple of years ago, we showed up in one hotel room. It was, uh, it was a room for, for our, uh, it had, it, we went into it and it had six different single beds in it. I'm like, how does a hotel like? What is this thing like? Is this uh, so? We, we slept on top of the sheets and uh, on top of the blankets and uh, and, and just made it because why well, you had this mentality that well, it, it's it's only for one night. What if we started to look at life like a bad night at a cheap hotel? It's a bad night at a cheap hotel. I can endure this because I know he's coming back, and on the other side of his return. If you're in Christ, things are way better. Things are way better. All of a sudden, that mentality of just like, you know what? The suffering, the the back pain, the issues with this, the job loss, this. You're kind of like, you know what? I can endure this. I can hold tight to him. I can draw close to him because I know it's just a season. And I've got the next million years where things get way better upon his return. Amen? couple of reminders just as we close. Living awake, maximize conversations, enjoy moments, forgive, endure. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this pending return that your word is crystal clear about. We don't have to wonder, is it going to happen? The question is when. And the second question is how do we live in response to that? How do we respond to that reality? I pray specifically this morning for the person that might be in this room that's never embraced you as Lord and Savior. My prayer and my hope is this would be the day that they cross that line. They, tr- they stop gambling. They stop risking with this life. They make the choice to embrace the free gift, your finished work on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. I Pray even as I'm praying right now, they might call out to you with that embrace. God, and for the rest of us that we would seize moments because we have a limited window to serve you, the one that we love. God, we praise you for your grace. We praise you for your help in this. We praise you for the Holy Spirit that allows us to stay awake and seize these moments. We praise you in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Well, if there's something specific we can be praying for you about, we have a couple volunteers here in the front. Otherwise, have a fantastic Sunday. God bless you.